0: I'm Nicole McCants, a psychologist turned business coach for psychotherapists. It was not long ago when I was in solo private practice, seeing way too many clients feeling overwhelmed and burnt out. In 2016, when I became pregnant with twins, I knew I had to scale to a group practice because I couldn't keep working that much. I was sick of hitting the ceiling in my income and knew that the only way to make more money and help more people was expanding my practice. In three short years, I was able to scale it to 55 therapists and multiple seven figures. Once I was able to reach that goal, I had to take it to my peers. I'm here to teach you how to scale your solo practice to a group or take your group practice to the next level. We didn't learn anything about business in graduate school. So I created the Business Savvy Therapist podcast where I share easy to implement, business and marketing strategies so you can help more people make more money and have more freedom. Let's dive in. Welcome back to the Business Savvy Therapist podcast. Today I'm speaking to a very successful group practice owner who's going to share some of her success secrets. Andrea Warnick, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Tell us a little bit, will you, about yourself and your practice?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm a registered nurse, a registered psychotherapist. I came to this work through nursing and realized pretty quickly that the stretch point for me was having the really hard conversations when somebody was dying or people were grieving and ultimately became a therapist, worked for many years for a charitable organization in Toronto, and then ended up going out on my own really just intending to be myself. And my entire focus was grief, mostly at the time working with kids who had somebody dying in their life or Mm. who were dying themselves. But I started working with adults as well and realized pretty quickly that I couldn't meet the demand on my own. I actually moved to Guelph just before the pandemic, but kept going back to Toronto. But then so much went online as well. And so it really opened things up and about four, five years, maybe four years ago, I think I brought one other therapist on board and I was like, you know what? I need a bit of help here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, could you see some clients too? And we worked closely together and pretty quickly, we just kept adding therapists and adding therapists. And now there's 30 of us sort of between Ottawa and London, Ontario doing maybe 80% of the work online, but most of us have in-person spaces as well. So more of a okay. hybrid model.
0: So in four years, you grew to 30 therapists. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm really interested to know how you did that virtually. And it sounds like you're niched. I have so many questions. So let's actually start with your niche actually. Yes. Do you think that your success had to do with the fact that there was a real hole in the market? I I
1: do. I think there was, that's part of it. I think that um, in terms of just grief and bereavement in general, we live in a pretty grief, illiterate society. And so it's a pretty lonely experience for a lot Mm -hmm. of people, even though it's something that we all experience at various times in our life. And so I think having sort of a centralized place where people could find therapists who, I mean, all of us share, we have different approaches to the work, but we all share a passion for well-informed grief support. Mm -hmm. And I think that definitely lent itself to our growth.
0: Yeah. Can you walk me through, do you do anything different? Is it just individual therapy?
1: Well, it's sort of all over the place. So, I mean, for all of our therapists that we ask, they at least have some in-person space because we're definitely seeing, even in the last year, more people coming back and asking for in-person. Yes. So, I have a space sort of like in my home in Guelph, but so we kind of want to have people geographically spread out. Mm -hmm. But, you know, sometimes we've offered groups. Some of our therapists work in different places too. Like they might also work at Gilda's Club and run groups there and work for us part-time. But we really, there's sort of three main arms of our practice. So the individual therapy being a big part, but we also do a ton of education and we do a ton of consulting with various organizations as well. And some of our therapists, they're like, we do not want to teach. We're not interested in consulting. Like we just want to do therapy, which is absolutely fine because there's enough demand for that work. But we also really try to bring people onto the team who we know have a passion for facilitating and education educating and going sometimes to organizations like in the day or two after
0: somebody's died and being able to provide support that way. Oh, nice. Would you say like an impl- like a workplace? When you say an organization, is that what you mean?
1: Yeah. And that was more accidental for us. It wasn't something intentional. But We just started having more people calling and saying, you know what? Like somebody died at our workplace. We called EAP. Yeah. The, you know, they didn't really have the skills specific to grief. I mean, it's hit or miss. Mm-hmm. You know, can you guys come in? and provide mm-hmm. some more grief-specific support. And those are more of the grief debriefs, which are a pretty quick turnaround. But there's a lot of organizations like Sick Kids where I teach you know, three times a year, a five-day certificate program on children's grief and bereavement. Okay. So many of us will teach for other organizations as well. And we run our own trainings every year too. We run out grief education day every fall, kids grief education days every spring.
0: Okay. Now, I can imagine that that leads to a lot of referrals because you're also doing facility. It's like doing master classes in a way, because you're talking about, you're educating them. They're realizing, oh my gosh, I need help. And then do you get a lot of clients from that?
1: Yeah. And I think that was the part that I really didn't realize. I mean, I I didn't do an MBA. I'm always like, that was the degree I missed doing (laughs) and would have been very useful in this situation. But I, I think that because, I mean, I've always been passionate about teaching and it's really how I balance the clinical work. I mean, I'm very conscious of being in private practice that the vast majority of the population like, does not have the means to be able to get access to private therapy, which is why I find it so important to be out there and to be teaching and really just raising sort of the grief literacy level in our society. The you know, accidental part of that was really that it was also a lot of marketing. So Mm. people sort of knew about us, knew about me and what we were doing. And it's kept our marketing budget very, very low because we spend so much time teaching, not for that reason, but sort of came as a result of that.
0: And so how did you, because I think people are like, ooh, okay, I love to speak. I would love to support people in that way. How did you find the people and get in the door to do the talks?
1: To be honest, I was very passive about the whole thing. I mean, I know there's a whole philosophy around pitching and everything else that very much can be used to open the door. For me, I mean, I was fortunate when I was working at the charitable organization, we were already sort of on the conference circuit around grief and bereavement. Um, and so when I went out on my own, my name was already out there a bit in terms of the teaching. And then early on at Sick Kids, I was like, can we do a one day workshop? And we did a one day workshop and pretty quickly they were like, let's make it bigger. And so, you know, the more I was just sort of out there doing, like, sometimes it was just me actually applying to conferences right? And doing, it wasn't necessarily a keynote. I do more keynotes now, but at the time I would have just been doing a breakout session. I applied to do it or whatever else and got accepted. And then people just sort of got to know me and the work that I was doing and the passion I have for the work. And so it, it really wasn't very intentional, but I do know that there's a lot of people who, you know, there's ways of actually pitching and being able to introduce yourself to organizations as well and find out their need and help fill that gap.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you weren't so much going to where the client's at, you were going to where other therapists were at then, at conferences.
1: Other therapists, but I'd say you know my background being a nurse as well is often at medical conferences. So it might be more physicians, social workers, doctors. And so yeah, like a very wide range of disciplines.
0: Oh, I love that. So what I'm hearing is like lean into your network and lean into your strengths because you had already these connections in the medical industry.
1: Absolutely. And I think Unlike a lot of therapists, I sort of had the benefit too of I was a bedside nurse in palliative care and in pediatric oncology and adult oncology. So I actually had the experience of being with people yeah. as somebody was dying, having the two a.m. conversations. I often called two a.m. the vulnerable hour where people's biggest fears come to the surface, and there's not typically the counselor on the floor or right. the social worker. Yes. Um, and so I really had one fit foot sort of in the medical world and then one in the more psychosocial.
0: Okay, I love this about conferences because I can imagine too. That is that how you did your recruiting? I can imagine people listening to your keynote and saying, "Hello, uh, yes, please train me." <laughs> yeah, totally accidental
1: again, but quite often it is people who come through our trainings, and you know, and it might be one of the trainings I'm doing at another organization. It might be one of the ones that we're doing, you know, ourselves. But people are like, "This is something that you know I've got a passion for," and so we've sort of we've built out an internship program. I mean, we're very new; we're only a couple of years into doing that but half of our team are social workers, half are psychotherapists. We have one psychologist. And so we've really built out an internship program where people can do their interns with us. And we 're pretty careful like we 're only taking people who have already done a lot of training in grief and bereavement. They might be going sure. back to graduate school, but like they 've done trainings they 've been at those conferences and everything else like this is their passion, and then through the internship program, they often graduate and come back as therapists or stay yeah. on as therapists
0: yeah that 's so interesting in my business coaching program there 's a few EMDR specialists and and they, yeah. anyone listening, if you have a passion in something whether it 's ifs or yeah. trauma do the conferences and then you'll find the people. The beautiful thing yes. is I love the internship model. I use that model at the beginning yeah. and they become mini me's yeah. and then, and then you've invested eight months and then it just makes sense. And now they're an associate, a well-trained one, because guess what? They were trained by the best.
1: <laughs> well, exactly. And that's the thing that's really exciting too, because I'm like, there's limits to what I can do, but I can supervise a number of people. Right? Exactly. And, and really be shaping them as therapists, which is very exciting to see, see and do.
0: Want to hang out live? Join my next masterclass, Level Up to a Seven-Figure Group Practice, where I walk you through the proven strategies to scale your solo practice to a group or take your group practice to the next level. If you attend live, I give you a special bonus that you are not going to want to miss. The link to register is in the show notes. See you there. Now, do you see clients anymore now that you have this big practice? Or are you mostly supervising?
1: So I do, but I'm sort of on the tail end of it right now. I'm actually taking a sabbatical starting this summer, which my partner keeps saying you can't really say it's a sabbatical because you're still running the practice and you're still going to be teaching. But I am stopping the client work for 14 months. And then I will be supervising during that time
0: and sort of see where I'm at at that point. I love that. That's exactly what I help people do: is have a clinic run itself. Now, your clinic must be systemized a little bit for you to step away and focus on supervision and sabbatical. Have you set it up to?
1: Yeah, so I actually run. <laughs> I have a business partner, so there's two of us running it. And Colleen is the the director of all the clinical operations, and I'm on the consulting education side. So that definitely gives so much more wiggle room, but. I'll be honest that it's not that I could just walk away from it all right now. Like I will really, I'll probably be more entrenched in the business side of it while I'm on my clinical sabbatical than I currently have. And that's part of why I'm actually doing this. I just feel that, you know, it's been a huge growth for me to learn the business end. Like that's the part I didn't get training in. Yep. And I need some more spaciousness to actually do that and be involved in coaching and making sure we're actually, you know, really creating a well run model where even though it's quite big right now by therapist standards, we still want the therapist to feel connected to one another and well supported. Yeah. And that's where I'm trying to free up some time to be able to do that and make it more sustainable for the long haul.
0: I love that. And that shows me that you're a good leader because you're, you know, that's the goal. I think the ultimate goal for all of us. When you grow, eventually, I really think you do need to let go of the clients to step. You know who becomes your clients is the therapist. They're now your clients that you're focusing on making happy, cohesiveness, connectedness. How have you so far had 30 people who are working virtually, some in different cities, feel connected?
1: Yeah. I don't want to say we've done an amazing job of it because really, I mean, COVID created huge barriers. Before that, we would actually do every... I mean, we only had a year or two before that, but we would actually do like an in-person gathering where we would all get together. And so we've returned to that sort of over the last year, like in the fall, we did a family gathering at one of our colleagues' pools in their backyard and people brought their kids and stuff. This Sunday, we're actually doing, this is just for therapists. We're not bringing kids or family this time, bowling in Toronto. Yes. right? I'm a big fan
0: of bowling. Yeah. So we're going bowling. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly.
1: And we'll, you know, there'll be drinks afterwards and stuff like that. And it's really, an opt-in, right? Like there's no pressure for any of our therapists because really we have a lot of therapists who are part-time with us and part-time in other places. And so it's invitational, you know? And so, but we also do, which I think is an important part of our practice, every Tuesday morning are clinical rounds. Now, All of our therapists are independent contractors. We're not paying them to be there. So again, it's just for whoever opts in. And we usually have one third to half the team there. And what we do is either Colleen or I are there, or we're both there. And sometimes it's just checking in about how are we all doing, like doing this work. Sometimes it's more clinically focused, like what are the stuck points, You know, even as I'm going on sabbatical, I'm coming up against clinical issues I haven't experienced before. And so, you know, being able to lean into the team for that once a month on that Tuesday, it's our business meeting where we kind of go over the different arms of the practice and some of the project-based work. And one Tuesday is Grand Rounds, where we open it up to some other people in the community who also share a passion for the work, but we'll do something more psych- psychoeducational, like continuing bonds, or how do you talk to children about suicide, or something
0: like that. I love that. That's funny. I was talking about that just the other day. I find that the therapists, they don't always show up to the social things, but, but it's important to do those, Yeah, and important to bring their families. I feel like that really, it's like important to be like, oh, that's the other half of your life, right? Yeah. But I find they show up to the trainings. Those are the ones where the number I don't know if you notice that, the numbers are higher. Bring in those yeah. experts and they will show up. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. And even the own trainings that we offer, like when we, we just did Kids Grief Education Days over two days a few weeks ago, and we opened it up to our entire team. So it was all our team presenting, but there's still 20 people who totally. were presenting and we're like, just come, you know? And, yes. and I find a lot of people do show up to be a part of that. And it's really nice just to have that team support and their voices to be part of the training.
0: Yes. It's funny. So we did the same thing and it saves on costs actually, because eventually people are like, oh sure. Yeah, I'll do a talk. I'll do a talk next month. And then we're just all sharing and collaborating and you're not having to pay a speaker to come in, for example.
1: Yeah. And we've really, I know a lot of fruit practices do pay speakers to come on. We really haven't done much of that at all. It's pretty much, even our grand rounds tends to be pretty internal, where it's one of us presenting oh, on something perfect. that we're passionate
0: about. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like at least you, you probably attract people who like to facilitate because that's kind of your wheelhouse. It is one of the things we're usually looking for. It does, if you're right. an amazing
1: therapist and like you've gotten the therapy skill set, it doesn't matter if you don't want to teach, but we're We've always got an eye out for who are the facilitators, who are, I mean, particularly this piece where somebody dies in a workplace and it's a pretty quick turnaround, like they want people there the next day or really Mm -hmm. quickly. We need people who are ready to be able to drop everything and get in there and have some comfort level doing so. They might be doing a grief debrief. They might be doing psychoeducation about how to have a healthy grief process. They might just be there to support, like if anybody wants to check in individually, but we need strong facilitators for that part of our work as well.
0: Yeah. I'm really curious. I can imagine, I mean, burnout is a thing (laughs) in any group practice. And I, as the clinic owner, would have employees and contractors kind of come up and be like, I can't, you know, it's a lot. I just need to see less clients. But I can imagine in your specific niche, it's really, yeah, always kind of in the background. How do you deal with that I don't know if you've had people burn out. How do you prevent it? How do you deal with it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it is a, it's a challenge for sure. I mean, it's part of the reason that we really look when people are coming in, that they've already had some exposure to grief work and that mm-hmm. they're not just trying this on for the first time. Yep. <laughs> we're also, and I mean, we can't mandate it, but when we're supervising and when we're bringing people on, we really encourage that people are doing their own therapy work, you know, and that's separate than clinical supervision, whether they're getting it internally oh, yeah. or externally. We really encourage that everyone's got their own therapist and have places to do this work. You know, we're working, I think one of our limitations right now is because it's just Colleen and I feel like we're missing a middle level of like a clinical mm-hmm. manager or something, which is on our foresight to get. I'd love it to be that we could check in individually with the therapist more because we often have a sense of who might be getting close to burnout, yeah. right? And that's where we're really working towards getting to a place where we've actually got more capacity than we do now to have more of those conversations and to do almost quarterly check-ins with everybody. Yes, Just what's working, what's not working. I I do like that, you know, for a lot of our therapists, we have very few people who are doing full-time hours. Most people, it's part-time and they've got a different non-grief specific practice, which I think does a nice balancing job for people. But I also think both for myself and a number of the therapists, the diversity, like being able to do some education. Some facilitation
0: and some direct practice. Absolutely
1: right. Yep. Really is a resilience factor as well. Yeah.
0: And you're doing those weekly check ins. I I like that you call them rounds like the medical model. I might steal that idea. Yeah. We, I used to do every 90 days and when I hired, I called her operations manager, she would do them. We called them check-ins. We had a bit of even um, a rating scale, which can be helpful because sometimes they don't want to, there's a lot of feelings around admitting that you're burnt out, but a rating scale feels a little bit easier. Like I'm just going to circle 10. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's great.
1: And I think that's our goal. Like we're not there yet, but that's our goal. We're quarterly. We've got, even if it's not Colleen or I, we've got somebody to do exactly that.
0: That's so good. It sounds like you're on your way though. The sabbatical is so smart. Just a question about that. I think secretly we all want a sabbatical. What motivated you and how do you set that up logistically?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, I've always done this work where in the last couple of years where I'm not available in the summer at all. So I would tell my clients right off the bat. Now I'm not trained in EMDR myself, but we've actually now started being like when people join our team, we're like, you either need to be trauma processing trained, doesn't necessarily have to be EMDR, but some type of trauma processing trained, or you're headed in that direction. Because nice. there's so many people who are grieving who they don't maybe have PTSD, but there's some level of trauma. So every summer I like send all the people that I'm working with who I realize have some trauma symptoms and like for this eight weeks, I'd love you to work with one of the other therapists on the team who does trauma processing. And then I come back and they're more regulated. Yeah. So my clients were kind of used to me sort of like going away for a bit, but then really it was just like, and it was actually quite painful and quite emotional and more so than I anticipated to do. In November, I sent out an email to everybody on my client list and just said that as of July 1st, I'm going to be on a 14 month sabbatical. I want to give you a heads up about this you know and i i really tried to make it clear like i carry them and i carry their family stories with me and and i'll continue to do so but i won't be physically available and I think in this line of work with grief, it's really important that people see that there's healthy ways of also yes, having the relationships model. stop or not necess- not stop, but we're, we're not physically in the room together. So I really tried to model that. And part of it for me was just though the knowledge to like running a practice that got as big as it did. I've got relatively young kids and, you know, doing the clinical work myself has just gotten to be too much. And I feel like I need to model the refilling of the well.
0: I want time to read a book. If you can see
1: my bedside table, there's like 17 books that I want to read, but never get to read. (laughs) Uh,
0: And if you think about it, eventually something's going to break, whether it's, you know, you're not on top of it at work and they don't, they feel like you're not really providing the quality and they leave. And then you start seeing people leave. And, And I think people paying attention to that. Cause I see that sometimes where there'll be a number of therapists leaving, but the clinic owner isn't dawning on them that wait, you know maybe I'm doing too much and I'm spread too thin. Yeah. Yes, I bet you. And I I would love to hear from you in 14 months. Yeah. Don't worry I won't I won't reach out during <laughs> your sabbatical though. But I would love to know if your business grows while you're away and I have a feeling it will. It will.
1: Yeah, it'll it'll be interesting. And this is where I've got all these ideas for things that I want to sort of do and yes. I'm also trying to balance that with like and I want to go for a walk. I yes. <laughs> want to read one of those books. Yeah. And so at one time I was like, I'll write a book on my sabbatical. And <laughs> yeah. now I've talk- I'm talking. Uh, I'm like, no, one day, but yes. not in those 14 months.
0: These we're highly ambitious therapists, and it's this constant reminder just to slow down. That's so yeah. good. I would just in closing, thank you so much for all of these strategies and just hearing your story. I would love to know one book on your bedside table that you did one of the 17 that you referenced. maybe a business book, maybe you haven't read it fully or maybe one that you have that has made a difference for you.
1: Yeah. Oh, there's one and I'm embarrassed to say, I can't remember the name. I just got it recently and it's about building great businesses, which don't have to be large businesses. And Mm. I'm going to see, I might have to email you after and give you the name. My friend who does some coaching with me and started his own business that sold, it was a brewery, but he's like, this is the book I should have read before I actually started this Okay, business. everyone,
0: I, I'll put it in the show notes for everyone. Yes,
1: it's, yeah, I, I will get that name to you. You know, I, that is a big one. I've only read a few pages, but I'm excited about what it has to offer in the psychology of running businesses and healthy businesses as well. You know, but one for me, it's not as business oriented, but the grieving brain. We recently are, I guess it's another way we keep connected is we have a book club, a monthly book oh, club I on our team. Okay. And it's usually something grief related, obviously. We also just did anti-racist psychotherapists, mm. but we did the grieving brain a number of months ago which just did a beautiful job about uh, it's the neuroscience of grief, but it weaves in the art of grief Mm. and, and really, you know, the balancing of the hard stuff and the good stuff. And even though it's not a business book, I'd say that it has sort of shaped, you know, how I plan on you know, taking care of myself in the oh, sabbatical and just making more space for it all.
0: We all need that. Everybody listening is entrepreneurial and wearing many, many hats. So many. That is so great. Thank you so much. People listening, they probably want to reach out. How do they find you? Absolutely. Our
1: website's is www.andreawarnick.com. We have a newsletter that we get out maybe quarterly. Okay, um, so we certainly won't be spamming you, but um, it's through the website. All our contact information is there.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Nicole.
0: Thank you for listening to the Business Savvy Therapist podcast. I hope this episode was helpful. I would be so grateful if you would share this with a peer or colleague that is wanting to help more people make more money and have more freedom. Make sure to subscribe so you do not miss any new episodes and please do leave me a review. It would mean the world to me. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you in the next one.